Hello? Oh, there we go. Hey. <laughs> all right. You wonder what we did before we had all of this stuff and everything else. I yeah. So, <clears throat> well, good morning, everyone. Glad to see everybody here uh, uh, as we are slowly but surely returning back to what you could describe as some form of normality uh, and, and things in our lives. So again, welcome, and we're glad that you're here. Today we are going to be studying through the book of Amos. Amos is the third of the minor prophets, uh, minor prophets only because, they're called minor prophets only because the books are short compared to the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, but that doesn't mean that their messages are anything uh, that are not important. Uh, the message of Amos, as all the message of the minor prophets, could be jumping off the headlines today. Uh, and are as applicable today as they were uh, when these people were preached it all those many years ago. Uh, The Minor Prophets, one of the key themes throughout all of the Minor Prophets is the question of justice and of living out what it means to be a people of God. And if you are serving a just God, should you not also reflect that by serving with justice among people. And so one of the great calls of, the, of all the minor prophets is this question of justice. And Amos really focuses in on it. As you heard in uh, verses, verse uh, 24 of chapter 5, where he says, Let justice roll like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. As he calls his people to reflect what God has called them to be and do. And that the reason God brings an indictment against them is because they're not reflecting what God has called them to do. Again, when you read the minor prophets, every minor prophet is also an indictment of his people. It's an indictment that they are not doing what it is that they are supposed to do. So today, as we study through the book of Amos, let us remember that we are being called to be the people of God. And that means that we are called to follow him and do the things that he does. And our God is a God of justice as much as he is a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, and a God of peace. And to reflect neither of those, or to choose one over the other, or to emphasize one and neglect the others, is to actually worship a false god, and not the god that we are called to worship. So today, we have to listen to God's indictment of his people when he says, no justice. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, we pray today that you will direct us and guide us through your word. Your word is true. Your word is just. Your word grants peace when we are obedient to them. So we as your people, Lord, we pray that we will follow your call. We will seek justice. We will show mercy. 
and we walk humbly with you today. Lord, where we have sinned against you, may your word convict us, may the Holy Spirit direct us to you, that we will fall upon before the Lord Jesus Christ and cry out for mercy. Thank you, Father, for your blessings, and we pray today that you will guide us and direct us, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said earlier, Amos' message is as timely today as today's news headlines. With the events of the past few weeks, the concern for justice in America has grown ever more pressing. The horrific photos of the death of an African-American man in the custody of the police has sparked again the debate over justice in this nation, in which tempers have reached an all-time high, and the divisions of the American public have hardened into lines of fracture. Into this time, the message of Amos speaks. It's a hard message to hear and to read. Just as, and the events of his day spiraled to a conclusion that God's judgment would be sure. A just God expects his people to reflect his justice. And failure to do justice is a sign of a corrupt and morally bankrupt people. Amos is a contemporary of Hosea. You should have heard him a couple weeks ago. Uh, and he preached in the northern kingdom during the period of Israel, what was known as Israel's second golden age. This was when the wealth and power of both Israel and Judea would rival the wealth and power of Solomon's kingdom. If you've ever read the book of Kings or the book of Chronicles and it describes Solomon's kingdom, one of the statements it makes is that gold was as common as stones and that silver was so common they didn't consider it worth anything. They paid no attention to it. That was how wealthy Solomon's kingdom was. Well, now you have this second Solomon's kingdom arriving, where the power of Israel has risen to this level, uh, where they are wealthy, both Israel and Judea. Despite the fact that they're separated, they have together probably restored almost to the point of what Solomon's wealth and kingdom was. 150 years had gone by since the death of Solomon and the splitting of the kingdom into north and south. During that 150 years, there had been years of bitter rivalry and war between Israel and Judea, as well as times of cooperation and peaceful coexistence. This was a period of common peace before the storm. Both Jeroboam II, who was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and Uzziah, who was the king of Judea in Jerusalem, were long-reigning and effective kings that expanded the boundaries of Israel and Judea. Jeroboam would have the longest reign in the northern kingdom of 41 years. Uzziah would reign for 52 years in Jerusalem. With the decline of Assyria during this period, both Israel and Judea had reached the heights of prosperity that were seen only during Solomon's time. Prosperity abounded in this time, but prosperity was unevenly distributed and was used by the wealthy to expand their holdings and power. However, when Jeroboam's reign is described in 2 Kings 14, verses 23 through 29, it is reduced to seven verses. 41 years is reduced to seven verses. With the epitaph that he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart from the sin of his namesake, Jeroboam I, who taught Israel to sin. It is this sin 
that will be the basis of God's indictment of Israel and their subsequent judgment. So we have to understand a little bit about Jeroboam the first, so we understand what that sin is that Jeroboam the second is carrying on. Because Amos preaches to the northern kingdom. Jeroboam the first had been an official under Solomon. He'd been one of his ministers. But had been exiled to Egypt. God called him back and told him he would receive the political control of ten of the twelve tribes that Solomon was heir. God promised him that he would, if he would keep the covenant and obey the Lord, he and his descendants would reign in Israel. However, Jeroboam feared that if the people continued going to the temple in Jerusalem and that they would continue to worship the Lord there, that over time their loyalty would go to Rehoboam and to the southern kingdom and they would cease to have their loyalty to him. So he established alternative religious sites at places where the people had traditionally worshipped, such as Bethel and Gilgal, and cast a golden calf idol to be worshipped, such as was done in Egypt. So he reintroduces the worship of the religion of Egypt back into Israel. This sin matched the sin of the people at Mount Sinai, as described in Exodus 32, in which people made a golden calf idol and stated that it represented the Lord who had set them free from Egypt. After 150 years, this worship at Bethel and Gilgal had become a state religion and thoroughly mixed the worship of the pagan gods and goddesses, such as Baal and Astarte, so that the Lord God was merely a part of the mix. He wasn't exclusively worshipped. He was a part of the mix. He was just representative of one of the, of the gods and goddesses that everybody worshipped. Into this mix enters Amos. Amos is a rough-hewn man. He describes himself as coming from among the shepherds of Tekoa, which is a village south of Jerusalem near the city of Bethlehem. In chapter 7, verse 14, during a confrontation with the chief priest of the, of the king's tribe at Bethel, Amos states that he's not a prophet by training or profession. This man is not a university graduate. He's not a seminary graduate. He's not a, a prophet by training. He was part of the working class. He was a shepherd and a keeper of fig trees. He's a farmer with no great standing in the class system of that day, nor of any particular theological training. He's a layman called by God to preach the word of the Lord. What made it more difficult is Amos is Judean, the enemy, going north to Bethel to preach the word of God that God's going to bring judgment upon his people. Not someone you would probably welcome into your house at that point in time. He's at best suspect and at worst an enemy. I mean, what would you think? He's there to, to foment revolution and to overthrow the government and do those kind of things. That's what people are looking at Amos, as he said. So imagine just for a moment, if you will, in a period of time just before our American Civil War when the country was well divided, when the tempers were flying high, 
war was on the horizon. Actually, this is pretty close to what the time was like during Amos. And a southern farmer, dressed shabbily in a rough hand, poorly clothed, you know, regular farmer, with no particular speaking skills, no seminary degrees, comes north and parks on the steps of the largest church and richest church in Boston, Massachusetts, which at the time was the center of the abolitionist movement and the wealth of the Industrial Revolution. If you wanted to go to a wealthy place, Boston was the place to go. All the people there were highly educated. Harvard's located there, the first university in America. And here's this farmer standing up on the, on the steps to preach. He gets on the steps of the church to preach and, and begins to proclaim the word of the Lord. He begins proclaiming judgment against the powerful countries of the day. He starts off with England and says, England's going to be judged for the cruelty that they have done. France is going to be judged for the cruelty that they have done. Spain is going to be judged for the cruelty that they have done and the things that, and the way that they have treated other people. He turns and says, the South is going to be judged. Now you can imagine as soon as he starts to say that, and he says the South is going to be judged because they've abandoned God. They've ceased to worship the true God. They've abandoned his law, and, that's how, and they treat people cruelly and with, and with injustice. You can imagine at this point in time, the people who are listening to him standing on the steps are cheering him. Hey, all our enemies are going to be judged. We're going to be the top dog. This is great. Go right ahead. Preach it, Amos. I mean, you could probably hear him yelling, preach him, Amos. Go. And all of a sudden, he turns and says, you know, that you're next. He turns and says, and starts pointing out their sins and failures. And their failure to provide justice to the working poor. And how they had abandoned the one true God. By this time, Boston was thoroughly in the the hands of the Unitarians who believed that Jesus Christ was nothing more than a man. And that they worshipped reason and not God. This is how Amos begins by traveling from Judea the southern kingdom, to the religious city of Bethel to preach the word of the Lord to the people of the northern kingdom. That time was closing in on them, and they had failed to honor the covenant made with the Lord, and they were failed to live according to his covenant. I mean, he starts off, and everybody's going, hey, this is great. And all of a sudden, he turns to them. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, lays out the indictment God has against his people's. So let's look at chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, where it says, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, remember Israel is the northern kingdom, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father goes into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. 
They laid themselves down besides every altar on the garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Amos lays out that indictment to the people of the northern kingdom. He states for three transgressions and for four. If you add those two together, that equals seven, right? Three plus four is seven. That's the sign of completion. That's the number of completion. In other words, they have completely filled their cup with transgression and that God is going to wait no more. And it is shown in the unjust treatment of their people. The indictment is laid out in three parts. First, they sell the poor and the righteous for material gain as they use people to build their own worth and power. In Exodus 22:25, the Lord commanded that the money that money would not be lent at interest to the people of God. You could lend money to them, but you weren't supposed to lend it at interest. Well, they were lending money to the poor at interest and then coming in and foreclosing upon them at that point in time because they hadn't paid it back. This command was reinforced in Deuteronomy 23, 19-20. But it had been violated so that the poor were brought into ever-increasing debt and then sold into slavery. Second, they violated the covenant they had made with the Lord to worship him alone by adopting the vile religious methods of the pagan religions of the people who surrounded them. Verse 7 speaks to the use of temple prostitution as a means to manipulate God into giving them good weather, abundant crops, enlarged herds, which was the measure of wealth and comfort in an agrarian economy of that day. Finally, they established a system in which they would take the pledge of a poor man's cloak. They had been commanded that when you take the pledge of a cloak from a poor man, you were to turn around and hand the cloak back to him. Because if you didn't, he had nothing to keep him warm at night and to sleep on. It was all he had. And so they would keep the cloak and use the cloak in their quote, worship of God in Bethel. Or they would seize his wine as a a fine for violating some obscure law. They would make up these obscure laws and then seize what he could use to sell to keep him going. And then they would use those things in their religious rituals at the altar that they claimed was dedicated to the Lord God. As such, the leaders of the northern kingdom had created a system that would maintain their power, exploit people with less power, and establish a system of lawlessness that would result in injustice, exploitation, oppression, and violence. While eternally all looked well, externally all looked well and the power of Israel had increased in the region, internally the people were morally bankrupt, spiritually dead, due to their injustices, that they had perpetrated by their laws, both large and small. So for a moment, that now requires us to discuss what is justice then? If this is the sign of injustice, what is justice? Generally speaking, when we think of justice, we think in terms of a judicial system. You know, a law-making body that makes the laws, judges that interpret and rule upon uh, the application of those laws, and then, of course, some form of, a, of a, an enforcement mechanism that exists, like the police department, 
to implement and enforce the laws. And there's truth in that description. But that's not the origin of justice. True justice begins at the personal level in which people interact with people on the basis of an immutable and fixed moral law. That law was established by God and written in the hearts of men. In the garden, God walked with, man, with mankind in fellowship, which is an element of justice. To be in fellowship with another person is an element of justice. And established one command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We couldn't even keep that one, could we? <clears throat> what this command really focused on was that God was to be the source of the knowledge of good and evil, that he was to establish the moral law. And so that was where the moral absolute comes from, is him, not from mankind. However, mankind ate of the fruit. Why? Because they wanted to be like God. They, wanted, they were stating that mankind would be the source of defining what is good and evil, and thus becoming like God. That's our sin. That's the original sin. That we wanted to be like God, defining what's good and evil, defining the moral law. So that's the first thing is justice deals with the interaction between people. It is personal in its interaction. True justice begins with the realization that all mankind bears the image of God. And as such demands dignity and worth. The Judeo-Christian worldview is the only religious worldview that takes seriously the creative impact of being made in the image of God. In the Eastern religions, such as Hinduism and, and Buddhism, injustice is imparted to an individual, which is the result of the failure of that individual in some past lifetime. You're being treated unjust now because of some sin you did in some past lifetime that you don't remember what you did when you did it. Karma is the idea that justice can only be worked out through the reincarnation of the individual to a higher position and status so that any justice suffered is the result of one's own failure. In Islam, injustice is the reward for not following Allah. Again, the person suffering the injustice is the result of offending a god so that you must spend your life seeking to appease him by following the tenets of Muhammad. The reason you, uh, you're treated unjustly in Islam is because you don't believe. Believe, and you won't be treated unjustly. But if you don't believe, you're free to be treated any way we choose to treat you. Because you're outside. You're an outsider. You're free to be treated that way. In paganism... Injustice is, of course, a result of offending a god or goddess. And you spend your life seeking to appease the many gods and goddesses. Because you never know who you made mad. And so any injustice that falls upon you is because you offended some god or goddess. And now you've got to figure out how to make an appeasement to that god or goddess. Even in the secular world, injustice can be defended by the person's failure to either have the right education, 
which means they agree with the prevailing opinions of the power of the po- uh, of the opinions of the power elite, or because somehow they are some lower form of life on the evolutionary scale. In all of these positions, a person suffers injustice due to some external demands. Historically, religion has been used as a means to define, establish, and, in- and systematize injustice. Sadly, Christianity has not been immune to this thought process, and many times has been used to justify a system of injustice and excuse the oppression and misuse of people, even those who are brothers and sisters in the faith. Justice is the proper and respectful interaction of people with people. Even the ancient Greek philosophers understood this relationship. Aristotle, in his treatise on ethics, stated, that there were six virtues that were to be pursued by either a person or by a government in order to be ethical. Those six virtues were truth, beauty, goodness, equality, liberty, and justice. Of those, justice was the pinnacle of the virtues, since justice deals with the interaction of people. Aristotle states, Justice is, co- is complete virtue in the fullest sense because it is the active exercise of complete virtue. It is complete because its possessor can exercise it in relationship to another person and not just by himself. Justice seeks first the good of the other and not of oneself, and as such represents the highest form of love. Jesus summed that up, summed up the Sermon of the Mount, a statement of the justice of the king, uh, or the ethics of the kingdom of God, in Matthew seven twelve, when he says, "Do unto others as you would have them do unto you." The horror of injustice is found in the action of a person who acts in complete contempt of the Im- image of God found in another person. When injustice between individuals is systematized into a governing judicial system, in which exploitation, oppression. And the building of one's life rests on the manipulation of others for one's own personal advancement, then a house of cards has been built and will eventually fall. We have even coined a term for this foul personal interaction. We call it Machiavellianism. That's based on the writings of a 15th century political philosopher by the name of Niccolo Machiavelli, who stated that it was better to be feared than it was to be loved. And that you are free to do anything that moves you forward and pushes somebody back. Kind of sounds modern, doesn't it? As you read Amos chapters 3 through 6, the Lord speaks to the people about their injustices in very direct terms. He's very straightforward about how unjust they've been. And as he states in those chapters... Chapter 4 is kind of the height of the point where, he is, where he's bringing this out. So in chapter 4, he begins in chapter 4, verse 1, he starts talking about the ladies of Samaria. Samaria, of course, was the capital city of the northern kingdom. And he calls them fat cows of Bashan. I mean, he doesn't mince his words. He's, he's pretty straightforward on this. He calls them the fat cows of Bashan, who exploit the poor for their own pleasure. He excoriates their religious ceremonies and and rituals in verses 4 and 5 
as they hold festivals and bring offerings supposedly to the Lord, at the same time they're worshiping Baal and the gods of the other nations around them. We'll just check each block. We'll do a little bit to this one, a little bit to this one, a little bit to this one. Everybody will be happy about it. There is no repentance in their heart. They love the ritual ceremonies, the singing of songs and feasts, but there is no truth in their worship as evidenced in their lives. Chapter 5, verse 10, Amos says that they don't want to hear the truth because if they did, they could not go out and trample the poor. Take bribes in order to render false judicial decisions and to enlarge their own estates and wealth. Justice demands the truth about ourselves and about our society. Without truth, there is no justice. If any of this sounds familiar, it should. Because every generation of believers has struggled to overcome injustice. We don't like being showed the darker sides of our nature that is bent toward evil, selfishness, pride, and not good. We are living in a post-truth era in which the value of truth has been debased. Today we wish to create our own truth, an echo of Satan saying, you will be like God. According to a recent survey taken by George Barna and reported at ChristianHeadlines.com on June 4, 2020, 58% of Americans, roughly 6 out of 10, agreed with the statement that identifying moral truth is up to the individual. They agreed with the concept that no moral absolutes apply to everyone all of the time. This sounds pretty bad. That's the American people. It gets worse. On this survey, 48%, almost half, of self-identified born-again Christians agreed with that statement. According to Barna, only 6% of Christians surveyed exhibit a fully developed worldview, biblical worldview. Our society is not much different than the society that Amos preached to all those years ago. Despite the changes in time, historical events, and technology, we're very similar to that period. So how did God respond In chapter 4, God states that he sent on the people a series of events, many of them which were catastrophic, in order to wake up his people and call them back to repentance to him. So, for example, in chapter 4, verse 7, he sent a famine, and they did not come back. In verse verse 8, he sends drought and 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 some different weather anomalies, Rain would fall in one place but not fall in the other. Those are ideas of weather anomalies. Again, they did not return to him. In verse 9, he sent crop failures due to disease. They did not return to him. Verses 10 states he sent war and sickness. Again, not. Finally, in verse 11, he sends natural disasters as divine destruction, but in each one they had failed to return to the Lord. Amos says that God sends forth his prophets, his son, and his word to call his people of all nations and call all people of all nations to himself. He has hidden none of that from us, and yet even his own people too easily fail to listen and to seek the Lord and do good. In verse 12, the Lord tells them to be prepared to meet their God. Hebrews 10, 30, and 31 states, 
For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. In chapter 5, the Lord calls upon his people to seek him and live. He repeats that over and over again. Seek him and live. It is time for a religious reformation. The true source of their injustice is their religion in which they mix the truth of the Lord with the lies of the cultures that surrounded them. God called them and placed them there to be a beacon for serving the true God so that other nations would seek God and also live. That's evangelism. In this, the Israelites had utterly failed. Even Judea, where the temple of the Lord stood as one of the wonders of the ancient world, They were corrupted and headed to the same judgment as the northern kingdom, only just slightly behind. In verses 21 through 23, God tells them that he hates their feasts and their ceremonies, where they mix the worship of the Lord with the worship of false gods, all the while believing that they're worshiping the Lord. In verse 22, they bring burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings to the Lord, and they sing worship songs to him in the hopes of convincing the Lord to do their bidding. Notice the one offering they don't bring. They don't bring a sin offering. They have no conception of their sins before him. And they only seek the blessings of the Lord without seeking and obeying his obligations. In the pagan religions of that time and our time as well, the gods were to be manipulated into blessing you through the use of ceremony, Sacrifices up to and including human sacrifice, and through bribery. That's why you brought the sacrifice. You were bribing the, the God. Is it any wonder that if that was their conception of God, then how they treated other people matched their understanding? How we understand and, and know God is how we will treat everybody else. Our religious beliefs matter greatly. They drive our ethical response to other people. The great fallacy of the modern world is that somehow we have divorced the treatment of people from our religious worldview. Somehow we believe that our rational minds are capable of imputing worth, dignity, and justice devoid of a religious worldview. In reality, even the secular has a religious worldview in which they answer the questions of the ultimate. But if there is no God, there is no moral law, that all is meaningless, and as Fyodor Dostoevsky once stated, then all is permissible. And justice then becomes a means to an end for a cruel and ambitious mankind, so that justice is turned to wormwood, as Amos states in chapter 5, verse 7. Wormwood meant bitter, difficult to take. Wormwood was basically a poison. Justice devoid of truth and compassion is tyranny personified. Study the terror of the French or Russian revolutions to see that in the hands of those whom there is no God in which which they answer that, it's a free-for-all. Do whatever you want to somebody else. So what are we to do? We're to seek the Lord and live. Chapter 5, verse 24, which is the peak of Amos' prophecy, he states, But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an overflowing stream. 
We seek the Lord through obedience to his word. In the letter of James, he addresses the question, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can faith save him? That's James 2.14. Well, many take this to mean that works, that what he's talking about is works as a means to salvation. What he's really saying is that believing God must result in just relationships with other people. John states in 1 John 2, 4 through 5, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth of God is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Obeying the commandments is proof that you have faith in God. I mean, how can you say you have faith in God and don't do what he tells you to do? That doesn't even make sense, does it? You do what other people tell you and you have faith in them. Why aren't you doing that with God is what he asks. Verse 24 teaches that God demands both righteousness and justice. These two concepts are related but different. In righteousness, God demands for people to enter into a right relationship with him. That's what righteousness is about. It's entering into a right relationship with God. This is found in the call to repentance and entering into the covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. In the law, as given in Exodus 20 and restated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it is found in the first four commandments that there is to be no other God before God. And that we are to honor and reference him, his name, and his character. Justice is found in the other six commandments. In our relationships with others. However, we are ba- they are bound together. And to violate one commandment is to violate all the commandments as stated in James 2.10. In which even one who keeps the whole law but fails at one point has violated the whole law. So they're linked together. You can't treat people properly devoid of following God, and you can't follow God properly without treating people properly. In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked by a lawyer, one versed in the law of God, which stated, what was the greatest commandment? He he replied to him, saying that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, which is a restatement of Deuteronomy 6.5. He then states and says, like unto the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the laws and the prophets. Failure to love your neighbor is failure to love God, since our neighbor is also created in the image of God as we are. The famous novelist, author, journalist, and humorist G.K. Chesterton once said, the Bible teaches us to love our enemies. The Bible also teaches us to love our God or to love our neighbors, generally speaking, because they're both one and the same. Failure to love God will result in our failure to love our neighbor. So much of what is being called for today in terms of justice seeks to establish some form of the second apart from God, apart from the first. This is a doomed solution. For it will only result in at first anarchy and then tyranny. Justice without righteousness is tyranny. Righteousness without justice is to invite hell itself. In chapter 6, God pronounces his judgment on the people who are called by his name, yet are failing to live out their calling. 
He pronounces justice on those things that the people are relying upon as proof that they are in a right, right relationship with God, which was wealth and power. I'm wealthy, God must therefore be blessing me. Again, does this sound familiar? Too many Christian, in Christian circles believe that health and wealth are the proofs of a right relationship with God. And if only we offer the right prayers, the right sacrifices, give the right donations to the right people, and join the right organizations, then we will be guaranteed God's blessings. Modern religion has not strayed far from its ancient roots. Though perhaps we don't build golden calves, we do build golden buildings, universities, faculty chairs, and other items that can easily become the focus of our worship and intention and attentions instead of God. God says that if we want to, fight, want to be in a right relationship with him, then focus on building right relationships with people. First to those who are our brothers and sisters, and then those who we come into contact with. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their infliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Justice denied, even to the least of persons, is justice perverted. It is too easy to justify our actions and to think that God is blessing our actions. We must stay fixed and true to his word alone, unmixed in order to know the, perfect, the good and perfect will of the Lord. Only through obedience to his word will justice, mercy, grace, and peace be the legacy of those who believe. While many believe, while we may believe that God's judgment is slow or hidden, be advised that it is sure and true by his measure and time. Amos preached in the mid-750s B.C. Within 30 years, the northern kingdom would be captured, destroyed, and hauled off into exile by the Assyrians. A little over 100 years later, Judea would fall to the Babylonians. While we measure time with, within our personal lifetime frame of reference, God does not. In chapter 7, God gives Amos his three visions. The first vision he gives is the vision of locusts, much like you read in Joel. And so we have this vision of locusts, and Amos sees the locusts coming, and they're going to destroy everything, and he calls upon God and intercedes for the people, and God says, I won't send the locusts. Then he turns around and says, then God says, what do you see, Amos? And Amos says, I see a fire, and this fire is so hot and so overwhelming that it's actually beginning to dry up the oceans, and it's, and it's melting the land. It is so hot and so great. And Amos says, God, you can't do that. God forbid, don't do that. And God says, I will relent. Then he, he tells him, now, Amos, what do you see? And he says, I see a plumb line. And it is by this plumb line God will judge. A plumb line is used when a brick wall is built in order to keep the wall straight and true. It is a standard and a measure against crookedness. A wall out of plumb is a dangerous wall and liable to fall over. Think of the photos you've seen of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. God says that he is setting a plumb line in the midst of the people of Israel in order to judge their transgressions and enact judgment. 
There is one plumb line by which the church is measured, and that plumb line is Jesus Christ. At Calvary, righteousness and justice cohere and become straight. It is at the cross that evil, justice, love, and forgiveness are bound together as moral absolutes. At the cross, God judged evil, applied the penalty of death, substituted the love of the Son for the sinner, and forgave the sinner, showing mercy to the unbounded thousands who go to the cross for salvation. There is no other place in which moral absolutes are upheld and the mercy and grace of God is applied. If you want to know the standard, then know the Lord Jesus Christ, the book that reveals to him as the one true righteous God of both heaven and earth. The sacrifice of the Lord at the cross was the day of the Lord. In Amos' time, the people of Israel looked forward to the day of the Lord as a day in which everyone else would be judged, and Israel would be able to claim their rightful position as the one whose relationship ensured that they would forever reign according to the Lord. Amos tells them that their concept of the day of the Lord is faulty. The day should not be a coronet, would not be a coronation of the nation of Israel, but a day of darkness and judgment. There would be a famine upon the land, but not a material famine, a spiritual famine, in which the people will seek the wisdom and guidance of the word of the Lord, but they won't be able to find it. In the day of the Lord, we will not be able to find the word of the Lord. Over the years, I've heard too many people in the church claim for the lo- to long for the day of the Lord and as a day when all those bad people will receive what is coming to them. We too must be careful in what we ask. It is true that we are looking forward to the day of the Lord, that the day when the Lord will descend and we will be with him forever, and each day brings us closer and closer to that point and that return. However, the final the day of the Lord is a day of judgment upon the people of the earth. Our God is a consuming fire. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God without the covering of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God the Father and the Son that he has not left us abandoned, but has provided the means of rescue through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amos is a bleak book filled with promises of judgment for people's lack of right service to the Lord and for their injustice lived out in the exploitation and impression of those they should care about the most. The judgment of God has been out, met out many times throughout history. In the 19th century, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche popularized the concept that God was dead, by which he meant that God was no longer relevant philosophically as a standard of meaning, truth, and morality. While many intellectuals celebrated that declaration, he did not. As a matter of fact, it drove him insane. For he said that since God died in the 19th century, the 20th century would be the most bloody in human history. In Europe alone, the war dead in the 19th century was 5.5 million. In the 20th century, it jumped to 28 million. That does not include those millions who died at the hands of malevolent ideologies, such as Leninism, Stalinism, Maoism, the three million dead from the philosophy of Pol Pot in Cambodia and the ongoing horrors in places like North Korea. Without God, mankind has no reason to live in right relationship with other people, and the concept of justice becomes only that which is legal, not that which is morally lawful. In our own country, in the supposed name of injustice, we abort 1 to 1.5 million children a year. 
which is more deaths than the U.S. has suffered in all of its wars since its founding. Since 1973, abortion has ceased to be only, not only being legal, it is now enshrined as a right that essentially supersedes all other rights, and to argue against abortion is to, is to invite oneself to prison. This is merely one example of the price of abandoning moral absolutes in our times in the name of some ephemeral liberty. The, true, the treatment of the elderly, the poor, race relations, the silent civil war of neighbor versus neighbor could all be subjects of sermons that would fill volumes. However, praise be to God, he didn't end the vision of, of Amos in justice and in judgment. He could have. But he goes on in chapter 9 at the very end, in the last verses. He speaks of a day of restoration and a day when his people will enjoy true peace and true abundance. He promises that there will come a day that the fortunes of his people will not, be, not only be restored, but blessing upon blessing will be given. They will be restored in the land in peace and security, never to be removed again. Revelation 21, 3 and 4 The word of God states, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for those former things have passed away. So what will God's people do in the interim? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us abandoned as orphans. That you call upon us to enter into a right relationship with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that today, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, that today is the day that they will go to the cross to find peace and forgiveness as justice is applied through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those who do know you, I pray that today we will recommit our lives again to a life of justice, a life of loving our neighbors as ourselves, a life that reflects your justice, and a life that will conform to your word. Lord, may we be ever more and more committed to the word of the Lord as the day of the Lord approaches. And Lord, may we be ever, ever more confirmed and committed to following the Lord Jesus Christ each and every day, each and every morning, so that we will bring honor and glory to you. May your name and your word reign forever. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.